Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. Now, I haven't said it in a while, so I'm going to go ahead and say it today. The book of Romans is the closest thing in the entire Bible that you're going to get to a systematic theology textbook. What do I mean by this? Well, the Bible is divided into several different genres. You have the histories, like Genesis, like First and Second Kings, or First and Second Samuel. You have the poetic books, like Proverbs or Psalms. And yes, Proverbs also counts as wisdom literature in the wisdom genre, but it too is poetic. Then you have the genre of prophecy. Oh boy, when we get to the next big book we're going to be studying here, it's probably going to be one of the prophets, and we'll get into that genre there. But then you also have the gospel genre, and you also have the epistles, which are dogmatic texts written to people. And because of the epistle format, the epistle genre, written by the apostles like Paul and St. Peter and John and James and whoever it was that wrote Hebrews, you have the closest to systematic theology in the epistles. The Gospels told you what Jesus did for you and what Jesus tells you. The epistles tell you what that means. And in the book of Romans, that's where the whole of the Christian case, the entirety of Christian soteriology, the so what of the gospel and everything attendant to it, that's where it's all laid out for us, as much as possible. A close second comes in uh, 1 Corinthians. But that said, it's still a letter, and it's still an epistle, and it's still St. Paul, probably the smartest man that ever wrote Bible, writing this. Um, we get to chapter 7, and as we covered last week, chapter 7 of the book of Romans, I believe it is the most abused, most mangled, most misunderstood chapter in all of Holy Scripture. I brought that up last week, and I still believe it holds true to this very day as we start reading more in it. I don't know how far we're going to get here, starting in uh, verse 7 of Romans chapter 7, but we're going to be talking about this chapter a lot. So if it ends up taking three more episodes, my apologies. We have to be thorough here. With that said, I hope you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 7. And we're going to be reading here starting in verse 7. And before we do, we read the first six verses in which St. Paul tells us that we are free from the law. You know, verse 6 says... Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I want you to remember that verse in light of everything we're going to be reading here today. It is extremely important to keep that in mind. So let's go ahead and start in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. 
I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What is St. Paul addressing here? In verse 7, what then shall we say is the law sin? Well, what does he mean by that? Who on earth would bring that up? Well, the question is, if my members, if my sin is aroused by the law. After all, in verse 5, he had just said, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Naturally, the question is going to come up then, does this mean God's law is evil? That it is against God's will? If this is what the law produces, well, then it's bad. It's a bad thing, isn't it? Shouldn't I be worried about the law every time I hear one of God's commandments? Shouldn't I shake and tremble and quake with fear because of the evil that it produces? Well, here St. Paul feels the need to specify. He says it is not the law that does this. It is not the law that does evil or produces evil by itself. It's us. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He says this in verse 8 to specify it, meaning it's a good thing that you know right from wrong. But the sin that dwells in you is going to try to spur you to break that commandment. No matter what you want to do, that's what sin is going to try to do by itself in you. And here is, oh my goodness, we're only going to cover a few verses today, aren't we? Here is some of the issues with that. So the law is not sin. It's not the law's fault that you sin, that you cannot follow it on your own. And when faced with a commandment from the holy and just God, you sin in response to it. This leads some people to say, that's only talking about non-believers. That's only talking about the unregenerate. We can't go around saying that, that Christians are going to respond the same way to the law. After all, St. Paul said, we're dead to the law. We're released from the law. So St. Paul can't be talking about me doing this. This is one of the ways in which this chapter is mangled. Because there are people in what's called the holiness movement that believe you can get to such a state that you never ever sin. Period. And if you do sin, that means that you're damned, so you need to go convert again, go to the altar call again because you sinned, and, and that must have been some wicked part of your heart that did that. Maybe you weren't really converted. We need to do an altar call again. That's the holiness movement. They honestly want to say things like, well, the rest of Romans 7 only applies to the non-believer because they don't want what St. Paul is saying to be true. 
I'm just telling you, this is what I've heard. I've heard it from Calvinists who want to emphasize the law as something we should keep, the written code as something we should keep. I've heard it from Pentecostals and the holiness movement guys who believe we should enter into a state such that we never sin again. But when we look at verse 9, which is a verse they like to bring up, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Well, absolutely. That happens. Sin leads to death. And when we hear the law, oftentimes we find ourselves tempted to rebel against the law. And we find ourselves killed by it, by God's just punishment against it. However, does that mean that this only applies to the non-believer? To the person who is not yet regenerate, who wants to honor God, but can't. Because every time they hear about what they're supposed to do, then suddenly they just kind of, they just run and do the opposite thing. No, that applies to you right now. Not every time you hear the law, but it is still a dynamic that crops up. When we read the rest of the chapter, when we get into the rest of it, St. Paul applies all of this to himself as he does right now. Yes, there is a bit of a past tense there, but when we think about the law killing you, you're already dead to the law. He's not talking about killing you in the same sense of how Christ, when you were baptized, you are united to him, and then, well, with him, you are dead to the law. It's not that kind of killing. The law is the wrath that is merited to us, or at least it presents the wrath that is merited to us for violating it. So let's look at this passage again and see whether it really does apply to past tense only. What then shall we say? That the law is sin. So the question he's answering is, does my sin mean that the law is evil? That it's bad? That it rebels against God because of the fruits that are born in humanity through contact with the law? And he says, by no means. The same hell no that we saw in Romans chapter 6 of, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Yet if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Let's zero in on that for a second. The law educates us. And that can be the law written in our hearts. As St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, that the law is there in our hearts. God has given us a conscience that is based 99.999% on the Ten Commandments. So, that said, whether it is the law revealed to us in God's word, or if it is the law coming up from our heart to bear witness against our deeds or the deeds of others, we only know morality through God's law revealing it to us. That's a good thing. When he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, he's saying, I wouldn't know right from wrong if it wasn't for the law. The law is a good thing. We don't recognize something as sinful until we hear God's forbidding commands. And he says, real quick, 
I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. St. Paul is taking the ninth and 10th commandments and saying, this is part of the law that he's bringing up. Now, this is in contradistinction to what a whole lot of my Eastern Orthodox friends and Eastern Orthodox theologians have talked about when it comes to justification. They'll say you're justified apart from the works of the law, thinking or acting as though that is only the ceremonial or civic law. I've even spoken to a Russian Orthodox priest who held this opinion that, well, when St. Paul says we're freed from the law, we're dead to the law, etc. and so forth, what he's really talking about is uh, shellfish, polyester, going to sacrifices, observing the feasts, keeping the calendar of the new moons, etc. and so forth, all that stuff. Not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments being the bedrock of all morality means that you you really do need to obey it in order to be saved. That should be something you seek to do, and you need to fix that if you do violate them by going to confession, going to the sacrament, etc., and so forth. But with this verse here in verse 7, you can't say that. If he is including, you shall not covet, wrapping together the ninth and tenth of the Holy Ten Commandments, St. Paul himself is including the moral law, into the law that we cannot obey by ourselves. And so, in response to that, of course, I've heard some Eastern Orthodox theologians say, well, that's, that's about non-believers, though. <laughs> Let's address that just real quick. It is not about non-believers. I'm going to be hammering on this point home over and over and over and over and over again. In verse 21, when St. Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That is all present tense. That is all first person. The Bible does not tell you that this only applies to non-believers or people who are not regenerate yet. This applies to you and me right now. Sin is in us. Sin dwells in us, even if you are regenerate. Why? Because you are not yet fully in the resurrection. Your body is not perfect. You have an old Adam. St. Paul nowhere in this chapter says this only applies to the past. Does it apply to the past? Yes. Yes, it does. And he does use a bit of past tense here in the uh, 8th, 9th, and 10th, and 11th verses here. He's talking in a past tense, but that dynamic still exists. He still brings that up in verse 21, applying it even to the regenerate believer who now has a different dynamic. So, with that said, we are going to, as Lutherans, respectfully disagree with the Eastern Orthodox, with the Baptists, with the Holiness Movement, with the Theonomist or Calvinist friends that we have, and with the Roman Catholic friends that we have, who want to say, this belongs to the non-believer, or to someone who is not a believer yet. And we also are going to disagree with those who want to say we're justified by faith plus works, when they try to say that this is about the ceremonial and civic laws of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, uh, no, St. Paul here is including the Ten Commandments, which means it is all of the law. 
that we cannot obey due to our sin. And why is that? Why is that? Let's reread verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin itself produced what? Covetousness, which is a sin. So an internal sin, something in you and me, produced the sin that I commit. So here we disagree with our Roman Catholic friends who want to say that concupiscence or the desire to sin is not sin. This is one of the biggest issues of the Reformation. Sin is in you. We call that original sin, nature sin, inherited sin. It is something that just dwells in me like an ugly fungus producing all sorts of act sins. Sins that I commit or sins of omission when I don't do something that I ought to do. Sin or concupiscence, that kind of sin is in me. Original sin is actual sin. And it does persist. Even if in my baptism I am regenerate, even if in my baptism the process of sanctification begins in Christ, even if in my baptism I am pardoned of that original sin, that which no longer belongs to me, that original sin is not mine anymore. That's not me anymore. It is still present in my flesh. It is still a part of my body. This is why we call it our old Adam. And St. Paul here in verse 8 calls it sin. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Sin does this. The sin in me, concupiscence, produces sin. The desire to sin, therefore, is sin. This is one of those verses that is so excruciatingly important to how we understand the faith. It is understated entirely. This is why I'm repeating myself. It bears repeating over and over and over again that concupiscence is sin. Why? Because if concupiscence is sin, if your desire to sin is sin, then there is no amount of confession and penance and prayers to Mary. There is no amount of prayers to saints. There is no amount of rosaries that you can pray. There is no amount of self-flagellation you can do to save yourself. And at that point, if your works are going to be tainted and rejected by your concupiscence, all that's left is faith, trusting in Jesus and in his mercy to save you. Sin merits death. He says that it kills you. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And if that concupiscence, that desire to sin is sin, it is ever present with you. In fact, I challenge you, think about your day. At the end of the day, just think about it, get a piece of paper and a notepad and write down every time you wanted to do the wrong thing. And think hard, because it can happen without you noticing it. Think back to every time you did something without realizing it. Every time you sinned, was that really you? Was that something you recognized yourself doing? Where did that come from? 
I brought up a while back that, hey, some of the sins we commit are called presumptuous sins. Sins that we don't even realize we are committing. Where does that come from? That comes from your desire to sin that dwells in you, your concupiscence, which is a species of sin. There is no saving you by your own works. Because this is something that means you and I probably sin close to 10,000 times a day. If you look at a woman funny, if you look at her just the wrong way while you're passing by her, you notice those hips. Oh, dang it, you lost it after. That was inappropriate. You saw that thing. You saw that candy bar over at 7-Eleven and you thought to yourself, you know, I wonder if I could just take it. Maybe you don't even remember thinking that, but that's in you. Maybe you're having a conversation with your friend and you find yourself, uh, you just said a lie. You don't even realize it till in the evening when you're thinking about like, wait a second, goodness gracious, I lied to them. Where did that come from? Or every time you're so angry at someone, maybe an enemy of yours, and there's that part of you, that unspoken part of you that just wants them to die. But wait a second, the fifth commandment, you shall not kill with the mirror commandment, means that you should not want people to die, even if they are your enemies, unless there is a very, very special set of circumstances that only the law and only the voice of God can tell you whether or not it's appropriate to say you want this person to die. You're supposed to promote life. But in the middle of this, we have these thoughts, we have these inclinations of the heart, sometimes without active mental thought, sometimes without consideration, that we sin. This is a part of us. And so we reread verse 8 again. I cannot stress how important this is. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. It says, sin came alive and I died. I died. There is no Christian on this planet who does not have concupiscence. Even the most holy and sanctified Christian, who has been a Christian for a very long time. They take the sacrament regularly. They rejoice in their baptism. They love God's word and they are always meditating on it. The most holy and pious monks that have ever lived still had to deal with concupiscence. And I guarantee you, even the ones who have excised the desire to sin this way or that over and over and over again will find themselves having to deal with concupiscence Shifting focus onto something else. Oh, look at how holy you are. You don't, dis- you don't even need to worry about sin anymore. And now suddenly they're wrestling with pride. There is not a Christian alive who does not suffer from concupiscence. So when we run into the commandment, we run into the wrath of God. Because our concupiscence says, I want to do something else. So, in verse 10... The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. This sounds kind of crazy, especially when we get to Psalm 119, where King David is praising God's law. He is praising God's word. He loves every single commandment, and he is sitting there begging God, make my paths pure before you. But don't you think... King David was praying that for a reason? Teach me your paths. 
Lead me in your ways. Be the light unto my path. Help me. (laughs) King David is writing Psalm 119 from the mindset of, I can't do this. I love it. I want more of it. I wouldn't know what coveting is, and I'd just be sinning blindly in the in the path to death. The sin lies dead, sure, but I'm still doing the wrong thing. I'm still meriting God's punishment. I want to know. I need to know. But I can't do this. Oh my gosh, I'm so scared. Please help me. Help me, O Lord, to do what is pleasing in your sight. King David is doing, and we are going to be talking about this a lot, tentatio, struggle. The moment you want to rejoice in God's word, the moment you want to be holy before God, the moment you want to, even under the new obedience, serve, love, worship, and obey our Lord, your own sin, The devil, the world, the flesh, all of our enemies will come against you. And you must struggle with it for your whole life. And sometimes that struggle feels very easy. Sometimes it feels very, very difficult. But the law here is death to you. Because you are a sinner. Because I am a sinner. Because there is no way for us to say that our old sin nature is obliterated. Do you want proof? Go outside and see how many Christians out there still sin. We still sin. We can't help ourselves. Original sin, concupiscence, dwells alongside us even if we are regenerate. Again, if you don't believe me, ask yourself whether or not you have sinned. And if you think it is such a case that you should not be sinning ever, be afraid, be very, very, very afraid. Be afraid. For the Roman Catholic who believes that you can be in such a state of wonderful grace as to merit so much great good brownie points from God or to be such a super special monk because you're a, you're a trad and you're there as a Trentian Catholic, be afraid. Because there is no amount of confession that is going to save you. The law is going to say you merit death. If you are a Calvinist who says, ah, yes, I may not know whether I am elect or not, but I can have assurance through my continued sanctification. I should see less and less sin in my life as my path continues, making it more and more likely that I'm one of these elect. Be afraid, be very, very afraid, because the moment you look at your life and how much you sin, even as somebody that thinks that they're very, very sanctified and they've progressed so much on the path of sanctification, uh, the fact that you still sin, the law says you deserve death and hell. End of story. Oh, you're a holiness movement? Well, they already are very good at being very, very afraid because they think that they're going to hell the moment they sin anyway, so they really hope they can make it to church to get back to that altar call. There's a reason the holiness movement is tiny compared to the way it used to be. Be afraid if that's how you think. If you think you can help it, if you think you can earn this, if you think you are justified at all by your works... Or if you think, as John Piper does, that, oh, our initial, um, our justification, that's by faith alone. Yeah, but our salvation is by faith plus work. <laughs> yeah, John Piper actually said that. I, I couldn't believe my ears when I, when I heard it. Um, 
be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. Because you have no assurance whatsoever that you're saved. St. Paul is going back into that mode here that he was in the first three chapters of taking that law like a sledgehammer and just breaking us down with it. He talked in the first six verses, we are released from the law. We are dead to this. He doesn't want us to forget that as we bring this in. But now he's getting into the mechanics of why this is so important to be dead to the entirety of the law. This is why it is so important to have that core change in your very soul. So you understand the separation between you, O Christian, and the law of God. That that is not how you are judged anymore. That is not the metric by which you can say either you're saved or damned. In fact, when we look at verse 10, it says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now, where does the Bible promise life on account of the commandments? Well, that's actually Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which says, you know, the person who obeys these commandments shall live by them. So here's the mechanics of that. God tells us, obey these commandments, you'll live. Then sin comes up and cuts you off at the knees saying, but I want to sin. But I want to. I'm gonna. You know what? Even if I don't, I still want to. And uh, therefore, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner that needs to die. The very fact that you have sin dwelling in you that pushes against the law means that you sinned. Period. End of story. The commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now he asked in the seventh verse, is the law sin? And he's saying no. But the fact of the matter, the de facto result of the law, in our lives anyway, is that, well, it's death to us. It results in our death. There's no getting around that. There is no beating that. There is no way to sidestep it. The law means death to you and me. Now, do we love the law? Yes. He says, sin, seizing an opportunity. He repeats himself, much in the same way I'm repeating myself over and over again. I guess great minds think alike. And by that, I mean he is a really, really great mind. And I wish I had a great mind like St. Paul's. He says in verse 8, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. And in verse 11, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Except it's different. This is our cue that there's a chiasm here. We read 8 9, 10, and 11, and it's sandwiched between two key phrases. So sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 11, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. That is the mechanics of it. The same sin that dwells in us, our desire to sin deceives us, whether that's through coveting or anything else, he's probably repeating it to refine his statement that it's not just about coveting. It's about any sin. Our covetousness, our desire to steal, our lust, our anger, our desire to kill, our fascination with other gods and other religions, all of that comes from a concupiscence that tells you while it's acting up in your soul or in your very self, it tells you it'll be okay. There's no consequences for this. You should do it. It's fine. Oh, it's, it should be permitted. You're permitted to do it. 
That's how sin acts inside of us. That's how we act up in our old Adam to try to, well, well, that's how it tries to kill us. So the law is holy, St. Paul says, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And here is where I have to disagree with a whole butt-ton of Lutherans about this. Because I've had confessional Lutherans, or at least self-proclaimed confessional Lutherans, try to say, don't talk about the law too much, it's only going to kill you. Don't talk about the law too much, that's, oh man, we're in the New Testament era. And uh, don't talk about the third use of the law. People don't even respond to that, thanks. To which I respond by putting my pietist hat back on. And by pietist, I just mean a biblical Christian, somebody who loves the word of God, and I point back to the first six verses of Romans chapter 7, where St. Paul tells us we obey God and we follow God and we love God's law in a different way now that we are regenerate, because now that I am dead to the law, the law can become a friend to me when I earnestly desire to serve my Lord. So St. Paul here is taking a baseball bat and smashing up Gerhard Ferda's knees and all the other Lutheran theologians out there that are popular among LCMS circles that say, oh no, you, you, you shouldn't have to worry about obeying the law there. We don't do that. And no, St. Paul is saying the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And if it's holy and righteous and good, by the way, you should like it. You should love it. If it's from God, you should like it. You should cherish it. It's a treasure. It's the word of God. Treasure it and love it. It's the law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law that he has put in your heart, that he has explained in his word. It is a good thing. And now that you are regenerate, instead of being afraid or hating God's law because you want to do bad stuff or feeling like you have to go through the motions of obeying the law without putting your heart into it, now we can look at God's law and say, praise the Lord, I am saved. I want to know more about how to follow this God. Oh, good. He gives me his word. He gives me his law. He gives me something to learn from this. And yeah, I don't have to deal with the ceremonial laws or the civic laws, praise the Lord, but even those have a great deal of wisdom for helping me understand the Ten Commandments. I should be in love with this. This is how to please the one who saved me. This is how to live and to continue this sanctification. He can instill in me the virtue and the good works that he wants to see in my life. Awesome. I want to do that. That's just verses 7 through 12. And I have to warn you, if I sounded crabby, yet again, in reading this, it is because this chapter is so mangled. We are going to keep going next week to even more instances that people bring up that they just, they're avoiding what they don't want to say. They're avoiding something they don't like when they're reading it. They're constructing theological buildings in their heads and they believe that this chapter is a stone that shatters that structure. And instead of changing their theology, they want to mangle and twist what St. Paul is saying, even if they're doing it uh, subconsciously, in order to keep the theology that they want. And I don't want that for anybody. So, if I seem crabby, it's because I love this chapter. This chapter is a seminal, excruciatingly important chapter that well, basically demands Lutheranism 
I didn't become a Lutheran because I wanted to be. I became a Lutheran because that's where the Bible pointed me. <laughs> but we'll save that for another week. Amen and amen. <laughs>